0: expect your team to see the other implications, expect them to start seeing the ripple effect and ask them in the meetings, ask them, how do you think this can impact this? How do you think you can impact this? And give them the permission to start thinking strategically because our whole role is to motivate and inspire new leaders, right? And get them to that point.
1: Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. So in this episode, I'm happy to be joined by Jerry Larson. Jerry, welcome to the program. First of all, then we'll get to your background and, and bio. But welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much, Tim. I'm excited to be here.
1: Jerry currently serves as the Chief Operations Officer at U Science, an edtech company helping align talent, education, and industry by powering students to find their best fit future. Before that. Jerry has been in multiple executive roles across a variety of industries, including Senior Vice President of Sales Operations at MX, which is a FinTech company, VP of Strategy and Analytics, and VP of Client Engagement and Success at Scipio, a MarTech company. In her career, Jerry has had the opportunity to meet organizational needs from the perspectives of sales, CX, customer experience, operations, and L&D. Is that learning and development? learning and development in both the public and private sectors. Recently, Jerry has been featured as number eight on Women We Admires Top 50 Women Leaders of Utah list and believes better talent and people management are the key to creating better client experiences. So, Jerry, you've been in fintech and edtech and martech. Are there any others? That's
0: <laughs> started in defense contracting oh, really? worked my way through teaching at the university system and then moved my way into a corporate training firm. So, yeah, I've, I've actually kind of made the rounds and then largest kind of presence has been in SaaS of some sort. So the last decade or so has been in SAS.
1: That's quite a tour of duty, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, wife to a burly mountain man and mom to three kids. They are all taller than she is and twice as snarky. So I'm thinking there's a lot of personality in the Larson household. <laughs> a little bit of attitude, maybe even. Definitely not. <laughs> when she's not in the office, you may catch her and her family whitewater rafting or camping off-grid. Off-river, she'll usually have a book in her hand and a dog on her lap. I'm just... Sorry, we haven't met earlier, Jerry, because I I think you're a person that is easy to connect with. Thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's just start this way. Tell us a little bit about your growing up. Where did you grow up? What was life like?
0: Yeah, so I actually grew up in Salt Lake City, and I'm the youngest of 11. Really? I'll pause here so everyone can gasp because that's usually the response there. My cute mom wanted 12. By the time I came around, the doctor told her to please stop. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the youngest of 11. My dad was kind of a big wig up at the University of Utah, and my mom was the best mom that anyone could ever ask for. I have very, very capable older siblings as well who are all experts in their careers.
1: There aren't too many people that have an upbringing like that, I don't think.
0: That's true. Yep. It's a unique perspective for sure, and I definitely can hold my own in the ring, that's for sure.
1: I was going to say, what was it like at the dinner table?
0: We had really great conversation, but all of us are pretty outspoken because if you didn't, you didn't get to talk. So
1: well, hang on, let me back up, Jerry. Did you have a regularly scheduled dinner time where you sat down and you ate together and you you had that time? Did you do that?
0: Yes and no, they sure tried. But by the time that I came around, just to give you some perspective, my sister had already been married for a year. Yeah. And so I actually never lived with my oldest sister until I came later and moved into Utah and needed somewhere to crash for a couple of weeks while the house was ready. So and then my second oldest sister was was gone by the time that I was just a couple of years old. And so I think that during different phases of all of our family years growing up, there were different times when that was attempted and successful. And then there were times when that was not as attempted and not successful with as many teenagers as we had roaming around. And then by the time that I came around, I actually was there when my dad was an administrator at the university. And so I went to a lot of dinners with them. I went on a lot of business trips with them. And then I also was, to be honest, alone a lot of the time. And you know, they were kind of off whining and dining folks while I was at home. So my mom jokes that she's grateful that I was a pretty self-sufficient kid because they were off being administrators while I was in high school.
1: You had to be. Such a big brood, such a widespread, everybody doing everything. That's pretty incredible. Well, your parents must be amazing people.
0: They, they are.
1: What were you like in high school?
0: Um, I was a nerd, as, as a lot of us were, right? I was president of concert choir. I was valedictorian. I did some AP classes. I held down a job since I was 16. It's kind of an overachiever shocker. Kind of just did a lot, pulled a lot of all nighters and had a lot of fun.
1: That's amazing. Uh, that's pretty nerdy, Jerry. <laughs> Concert choir, valedictorian, high drive, clearly. Okay. So that sets the stage for this great conversation. So give us some perspective on just your overall career so far. You've worked in different industries, different organizations. You've got a a perspective that few people have because not only have you worked across industry but you've been working in executive roles and so you've been able to see the big picture right get up in your hot air balloon and and see what's going on now one of the things that i noticed in the intro is that you have a very strong point of view that we need to focus on talent and people management can you just say more about that
0: yeah absolutely so as i started out my career i actually thought i was going to be a university instructor well long story short i started in pre-med and then i was like huh i think i want to be home more and the, the ironic part is is that my surgeon siblings-in-law and i i think are home similar amounts so i don't know that that worked out the way that i thought it was going to but they're definitely absolutely brilliant so i'm not sure i could have cut it just the same but started out in pre-med decided i wanted to be home a little bit more and so decided I, i'll go into english i really love english so i got my degree in english and then got a master's degree in english and started teaching at the university circuit, and as I was starting out, one of my friends actually reached out. He'd recently got a contract with the Navy through the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and mm. said, "Hey, I need an editor, and I know that you like do sort of that thing. Can you, can you maybe do this at the same time?" So at this point, I had a little kid, I was pregnant with another one, and I was teaching several courses in Salt Lake for a couple of different universities, and. Decided to also take on this editing job. So I worked as a subcontractor for the Navy in just acquisition and procurement and worked in that for several years and then moved from there into government procurement and worked as a civilian and a contractor up and around Hill Air Force Base and then also for an organization that was right outside of Herndon, Virginia and Tyson's Corner and got into the government contracting space as I was still teaching. Then From there, as most are wont to do, the public sector path was really hard and (laughs) exhausting and um, churned me through just like it churns a lot of folks through. And I decided to take the private sector path. So decided to go into corporate training because I was able to marry kind of the, the bidding, the proposal, the procurement, and my consulting piece, as well as my instructional design background. And so ended up in corporate training and really, really loved that. And I'll get back to how all of it has shot towards that. But that corporate training piece really helped me focus on the people. And obviously, when I was teaching, my students were the most important. And I love to say that I had the best students ever because I was teaching night classes. And so these students were the ones who wanted to be there. They were paying these are their the own bootstrappers. Way. Uh-huh. They had their day jobs. They And I was teaching. My, my favorite course to teach was technical writing. And so I had like engineering students and pre-med students, things like that. And these were, these were bright, bright students. And I adored them and got to know each of them individually. And because I had the luxury of teaching at night, I had you know pretty small classes and got to know each of them individually and had just a really great time with that. So then take that into the corporate training realm. And the first thing that you'll learn as an instructional designer is it has to be audience-based. You know, everything that you do has to be based on what motivates your audience? What actual behavior change do you want to drive in your audience? And what are the things that your audience cares about? What's the basic, what's in it for me? And so take that then to, you know, into the SaaS realm where I've done multiple roles. And inside of that 10 year of my career, the, the second half of my career, just being able to manage folks, being able to interact with my teams and being able to see how they shine. Because so many of them just need a chance to shine and they need somebody to kind of just move out of their way and let them get stuff done. And so I, you know, I joke that my job kind of is only to grease the skids and throw the elbows and that's everything else is, is up to them. They've got to do great, great things. So all of that started with an audience focus, and so that's where it's come to me in CX and in other spots of it truly is down to the audience, down to those people, down to their behavior patterns, down to their motivational patterns, and down to their personalities. What is important to them, what drives them, and how can we make sure that we're facilitating what they need to get them where they need to go?
1: Jerry, when I look at the 2020s so far, well, we enter the decade with the pandemic. And here we are, we're, we're making our way through. But in many ways, many things tell me that the decade of the 2020s is the, is the decade of culture. Yeah. And that there's an awakening about the importance of culture as the great enabler of human capital. And organizations either get in the way or lead the way when it comes to that. And we've struggled. We've struggled in, in many organizations to create cultures where uh, people can really flourish. Do you have any thoughts on that about the 2020s? Do you see any shift? Do you see any inflection point? Do you see trends moving that direction? I'm just interested in what you're seeing from that perspective.
0: I absolutely do. I think that it is a pathway. So if you think about where industrial revolution started, it started with operational mechanisms and creativity, right? How can we create cool new things? And then how can we do it more efficiently, right? And there's that old Henry Ford, saying of, you know, if I'd asked them what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. So there's that creativity piece and then operationalize it, right? So even last night we were moving, I had my family moving some swag boxes and I was like, we're doing an assembly line. Like not each of us are walking all of these steps. We're having having six of us in this line. And and I just joked like Henry Ford would be so proud. But that really was, you know, that took 50 years and then you move forward and you think about the different polishing that has happened of that process Mm -hmm. since the industrial revolution started centuries ago. And as we get to that, we polish up chain of command. We polish up, you know, there's Lean Six Sigma that's come in. We polish up all of the operational pieces until the only things left to polish are the people. And, you know, all of us know, like, the software is coming out. The software is getting better and better. If you had told people 60 years ago that there would be, you know, eight different ways that you can do anything you want, you know, it would have just absolutely been they would have been flabbergasted. And so if you think about like, as we proceed through this cultural revolution, it's because the only thing we have left to polish is these pieces. We know how to operationalize stuff. It's just a matter of doing it. We know how to make things faster. It's a matter of doing it. So the things that are left are how can we innovate? How can we be creative? How can we automate? And how can we make sure that our people are the happiest that they can possibly be? And then I think you add to that also just a significant civil awareness There is, I think, a little bit more care now than there has been in a long time, um, just predominantly. It used to be that, you know, a few people cared. Centuries and centuries ago, only a few people cared about prison reform. Now, if you look at it, you know, there are so many people who care about every single civic thing that's going on. And so it only stands to reason that they would also just care about where they're working. Is it somewhere that they feel like they can make a difference? Is it somewhere that they feel like they're making an impact? And then are the people that they spend time with, the people that they want to spend time with? Because we're all you know, we're all together for eight to 10 hours a day, yeah. even if it's just on Zoom. Are those the folks that we really care about and make sure that you're interacting with people who have your same ethics and same integrity and, and want the same things for the world?
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I also think though that there are some obstacles that have been passed down to us in terms of mindset, in terms of the way that we look at organizations. For example, I spent several years in manufacturing and I was a, I was a plant manager for five years. Speaking of the industrial revolution, I was, I was deeply socialized into a mindset that said, an organization is a hierarchy, which is true. Okay, we have a division of labor. We have roles and responsibilities. This is how we get work done. This is how we create accountability. But in the hierarchy, the top of the hierarchy is the thinking part of the organization. And the bottom part of the hierarchy is the doing part of the organization. That right there is an incredibly debilitating concept. But I myself went into a legacy culture and a tradition and was acculturated in that way of thinking. So think about that. So we have cultural liabilities and assets that have been passed down to us. And one of the things that I'm seeing, Jerry, is that as the, the millennials swarmed into the workplace, and now we have the Gen Zers and they're coming in and they are not saddled. They're not encumbered with these kind of mindset or thinking or socialization, but yet it still lingers in organizations. It's still there. Yeah. So there's a collision that's happening as we move through the 20th century. You said more people care now. I agree with that. I've never seen in my career a time where organizations were more willing to conduct maybe an institutional examination of conscience and say, hang on a second, this isn't right. We've gotta change this, we've gotta change this. So that's why I say I, I, I see indications of a, of a pretty major shift happening,
0: yeah.
1: which is exciting.
0: And I think organizations are more mission-driven and value-driven than they ever have been. Obviously, they had missions, they had visions, but was that discussed in interviews quite so much a century ago as it was now, right? And and I don't know that <laughs> no. the case is that, 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 right? I don't think that's the case. I 100% agree with you. Again, I grew up in my career in the Department of Defense as a contractor, right? Which, as you know, as a second-class citizen in the Department of Defense, if you're a contractor and you are very much just you know told, hey, just do your job kind of thing. But my what I found was, was super interesting. The leaders that I encountered in the Department of Defense, the first, you know, almost decade of my career, the more brass they had, the kinder they were really? and the more empowering they were. It was, it was amazing. So we would, hold, we would hold this symposia at the Naval Postgraduate School. And it was so interesting. I did kind of a social experiment over these six years as, as I would watch folks come in and check in. And sometimes the lower ranking were just kind of not the kindest of humans to those of us who were trying to get them, you know, taken care of and moved through the event and things like that. And yet my boss was a rear admiral. Well, my boss was GDIC, but or GDIT, but my my the contractor boss and the contractor owner was an rear admiral and he was one of the kindest humans that I have ever met. And the funniest thing is I said to him once, I was like, why is it that all like, you know, the Navy captains and the army majors and all of the colonels are so nice. And you talk to some of those lower ranking officers and they're not the nicest humans. And he was like, yeah, that happens. And and just like totally owned it. And it was amazing to me. And then fast forward a little bit to a different government contracting firm. And I worked with retired majors and retired colonels all the time. And I was the proposal writer. And we'd sit in a room and we'd say, how are we gonna answer this proposal? And I would type while they talked. and, and, And I would say, is this what you meant? And they would go, yes. And they were, you know, and, but those men, and I might get emotional. Those men were the most empowering humans I have had the chance to work with. And I was a 23 year old chick who just had a master's degree in English. I had no idea what I was doing in government contracting. And they were so good to me. Mm. And they absolutely empowered me with whatever ideas I had. Never once did I feel they were misogynistic. Never once did I feel like they didn't trust me. Never once did I feel like they were holding my age against me. And these were very well-decorated veterans and they were amazing to me. So even though those chains of command and hierarchies have persisted, I do think that's one thing that we can make sure that we change the world with is that you can still be kind regardless of how many match brass is on your shoulder.
1: Yeah. And... Contrary to what a lot of people think, you can hold people accountable and be kind.
0: You can. At the same time. And you must. You you must. must. Yeah.
1: It's so encouraging what you've shared, Jerry. That's pretty incredible. So you've brought some gems to this discussion. Tell us, and these are, I guess these would be key insights, key lessons, key takeaways from your uh, professional life. Well, and even personal life too. And there's really, I don't know how you separate one from the other, but Introduce a gem to us, Jerry, and uh, let's talk about it.
0: So actually, I jumped the gun a little bit. That first one was one because you talked about hierarchy. And I thought, oh, okay, let's talk about the department. <laughs> Second one is I have had the luxury of being raised, as I said, by the most wonderful mother on the planet who was just absolutely born to that role and is the kindest human that I think most people have met in her circle of influence. And shocker, I was a snarky teenager and I would come home from school and whine about things that had happened and, you know, frustrations that i would had and things like that. And immediately she would say, you don't know if they were having a bad day. Maybe they have a super hard home life. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they just are intimidated. Maybe they're super tired today. Maybe their mom was rude before they left. Like they would just, just go through every possible scenario. Wow. And as a teenager, obviously I be like, mom, just for once be on my side and just commiserate with me for a minute. But as I look back now, she was teaching me to assume good intent. Mm-hmm. To just assume that they have hard things going on and that whatever they're trying to do, they aren't trying to be me. And as I've gone up through my career, I think that that then was reinforced by Brandon DeWitt when I worked at MX. And he has since passed on, but left an amazing legacy for those of us who have the pleasure of working with him. And that was one of the things that he you know, he just kind of preached all the time was assume good intent, assume that everybody's just trying to do their best. And that nobody's trying to sabotage you. Nobody's trying to make your life miserable. And if you come to things with that, and come to assume, you know, hey, this person's just doing the best that they can. So when you walk into a into a meeting, and even if they've thrown up an obstacle, or even if they're making your life miserable, you can just assume that they have a meaning behind it. They have a reason. There is something that they have going on that would give you that. And that also helps you bring a level of humility. One story that I kind of cling to, and this individual knows who they are, but I started at an organization a long time ago and came in and kind of inherited a territory war and didn't really know that that's what I was stepping in, but didn't see that that's what I was stepping in either. And so sort of kind of perpetuated it and grabbed onto it and was like, oh, you're right. Yeah. Let's, you know, grab the pitchforks kind of thing. And eventually realized my mistake and brought that individual cookies. I didn't know what else to do, but I just brought him cookies. And I was like, I've been a jerk. I'm so sorry. I don't know what else to tell you, except I think you're great. And I know I've been a jerk and I'm so sorry. And he and I to this day have a fantastic relationship. Because he accepted the Oreos that I brought him, <laughs> he was super nice about it. So and forgave me. So I think that there's also a level of forgiveness that needs to happen in that. Mm-hmm. That we really are human, and we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And even if we goof, because we will, just assuming that folks are trying in general to do the right thing.
1: Well, even if they're not, which on occasion maybe they're malicious. Even if they're not, if you play defense, yeah, then. You're still not going to be all that you can be. And even if you absorb a loss from time to time, a personal loss, an emotional loss, a political loss, an economic loss, aren't you still better off? Yeah.
0: You've got to let it go or it's going to, right? Or it's going to eat you. And you also have to just think, okay, how can I never do that? How can I never be that person? Right? Like, I think all of our number one fear is when we leave an organization for everyone to say, Oh, hallelujah, that that person left, right? Because they weren't cutting it, or they weren't working hard enough, or they were detrimental to the organization. That's like all of our number one fear. So looking at that and thinking, Okay, I'm just not going to be that person. And being able to write down some of those situations and say, I will never, right? I, I will never put money above a person. I will never, whatever that may be, whatever you need that idiom to become.
1: I think you can take a real positive perspective on it. I remember many times um, coming up through my career, going back to my wife and saying, Tracy, I learned another thing that you shouldn't do. I learned what not to do. And she'd say, well, who, who did you learn that from? My boss. I learned what not to do. And so he was, or she was mentoring me. I think about all the bosses that I've had. And they were always mentoring me. Sometimes it was reverse mentoring, but it was just as powerful, just as instructive. So there's a stream of data coming at you every day as you interact. The qualitative data, right? The anecdotal data, the impressionistic data. And you're getting it. The only question is, are you paying attention? Are you learning? Are you doing pattern recognition? Are you looking at cause and effect? What are you distilling from the experiences that you're having? And you may have an unbelievably talented benevolent mentoring boss. Guess what? You're also going to have a chance to have one that's not. This is part of the experience. You need to anticipate that this is going to be true, but you can learn from every single one and you can take a very positive perspective about that even when you're having a a tough time. So I'm 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 assuming that that's true for you as well, Jerry. You some amazing leaders and then some not so amazing leaders, but they still taught you a lot. Is that true?
0: Yeah, it is true. Well, and, and sizes of organization too. I've been in organizations that were, you know, four people with a bunch of contractors, but four people running the show. And then I've been in organizations where there's, you know, 60 to 100. And I've been in those that have grown from, you know, 100 to 900 while I've been there. I used to joke, only sort of joking, that as I rose up through my career, I saw a lot of what not to do. I didn't see, you know, until kind of the last half of what to do. (laughs) And, and so I felt like I needed both of those perspectives. And so I came to a turning point at one point of deciding, am I going off on my own? Am I going to go, you know, is it time to jump into something by myself? Is it time to jump into this other organization? What should I do? And when I got to that point, the person who was hiring me, said, you know, why would you do this? Like, like, let's talk about it. And I said, honestly, I feel like I've seen a lot of what not to do and I need someone to show me what to do. I need to watch a culture that works. I need to watch a culture that's healthy and I need to then absorb all of those different things and watch a mission and a vision-driven culture that is healthy. So that then when I go turn around and go help others in, you know, in whatever my next role is, that I will have seen the example, not the the opposite of it. And absolutely, and to be able to have seen both sides of that in different ways, right, again, whether it was a boss, whether it was an operation, whether it was processes, whether it was a culture, whatever that was, leadership, being able to see both sides of that. Has been absolutely phenomenal, but I hope that everyone gets the chance to see what to do because sometimes it's really easy to just kind of sit in the mire of oh gosh we've we're a train wreck right and to just think of everything that the organization wherever you are is not doing right. But it's important also to just stop every once in a while and just see what they're doing well and why they did it, and that there are a few things regardless of the organization. I would posit that you could. Choose something positive. You can find something positive that they're doing well that you would want to replicate again. Mm-hmm. And if not, then you should probably just go to a different company if you really can't find anything and it's that dark. But most of the time you can find something that they're doing well that you can then reuse later. And then write those down just to keep okay. a record of the things that you need to know.
1: I'm so glad you said that because I want to talk to you about your patterns of self-directed learning. You said, write it down. Can you share any other habits that you had about or for your personal development as you've gone through your career? What have you done? Because what I like to say is that you're responsible for your own learning and development. You have primary responsibility. You can't ever give that to the organization. The organization will forever have secondary responsibility, but you got to own it. You got to own your own development. And If you rely on the institutional machinery of the organization to carry you along, you're in trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%.
1: Right. So, what have you done?
0: Yeah. I think there's a few things. Post it notes and I are are big friends, Mm -hmm. real, real close friends. So, there's been a time when I've had an entire wall full of post it's of things that I've captured at that time, quotes that I've captured, you know, experiences. So, that is one of them is write it down. I also think. Don't ever assign something that you would not be willing to do yourself. Never in any of your roles, never assign something that you would not be willing to do yourself. And if needs be, get down and do it. (laughs) Because you might have to be the one that's doing it at, you know, the 930 at night because nobody else is taking care of it. The next thing is I would say, find those people around you who keep you sane and who provide insights. And don't just let it be those that are above you on the chain of command, speaking of the hierarchy. Make sure that you find people who are just starting out. Make sure that you find, you know, folks who know you well. Make sure that you find someone outside your industry and frame yourself in a group of folks who know things more than you do (laughs) and then call them and use that phone a friend resource as much as you possibly can. So, each of us has kind of, you know, probably built around us that group of people that can be absurdly honest with us and we will love them anyway. And you need to make sure that you take any advice that they give you and look at it decide if it's relevant and, and keep the really good things.
1: Yeah, people like that? Yeah. Sure, You do? Kind I of do. a kitchen cabinet that can talk turkey?
0: <laughs> I do. I love that. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I have friends from high school who are exceptional in their careers and really high in where they are. And they've known me since I was 15. So therefore, they can absolutely call me on my crap. And I can say, hey, this situation happened. Am I out of line? Tell me if I'm out of line, right? Then I have other mentors that are in the industry that I can text and <laughs> just did the other day and say, here's my situation. Tell me I'm not crazy or tell me if I'm crazy. And yeah. they can say, yeah, absolutely. Here's this and this is what we did and, and those kind of things. And then I also have folks who are 10 years behind in their careers than I am. And I've called them before and I've said, I need your perspective from this. There's my situation and I need to know if this is the case and, and I just need a sanity check. And I surround myself with folks that I can get that input from because I know that I have blinders on a lot of the time. So just being able to have folks who can help remove those for me.
1: Well, I think, Jerry, you're highlighting a principle, which is you, you are going after the feedback. You're soliciting the feedback. It's not going to come to you unsolicited. You're not going to get what you need.
0: No. And the higher you go, Tim, the the less it comes. Yeah. That's the thing is that if you're the frontline employee who just started your career, you're going to get every piece of feedback in the world and you need to not let it eat you alive. You need to be able to accept and learn from what you're given. But the higher you climb on that ladder, the less feedback you get.
1: Yeah. There's a filter on quality. There's a filter on quantity, but you're going to need it. And And this is where we see real hazards where as you move to higher levels of responsibility, if you shut that off, you suffer the consequences of isolation, you get willfully blind, and then you have impaired judgment as a leader because it's not flowing to you. But as I said, you don't just let it flow. You got to go get it. How many times have you heard leaders say, well, I have an open door policy. That's not going to get it done. i have an open door policy.
0: Yeah, I do end my one-to-ones with a start, stop, continue that I learned in an organization and had a leader who asked that in he was awesome. He meant it too. He said, I want you to tell me what to start. I want you to tell me what to stop. And I want you to tell me what to continue. Yeah. So, you know, whether or not my employees take me up on it as something different, I, I, you know, I can't make them or force them to do so, but I do end every one-to-one with a start, stop, continue. And I just say anything you need from me. And then any feedback you've got for me. And I expect them to be able to say, I actually need more of this or whatever. And recently, one of my employees did. He's like, I just need to know, am I doing okay? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I should have told you that. And I should have, you know, I should have been more forthcoming in that feedback. And so it's great for me to know that that's what you need. And I will make sure that you get it in the future. That actually takes me to my next gem, as it were. And that is knowing what motivates each of your employees. And knowing them one to one personally enough that you're not just saying, Hey, all salespeople are monetarily driven. Great. We'll throw out a spiff, right? You need to know that there may be those couple that are a little bit more altruistically driven and would really love to know that they're helpful. And, you know, you need to know that there's one or two of them that are based on flexibility and they may really need to know that they can, you know, take the occasional call, you know, from the Philippines or whatever. And, and there's that little bit of just knowing what motivates them that I think will significantly help your relationship with them and help you, you know, to your point earlier, still hold them accountable and still be able to help them get things done and shine. But that motivates them in the way that they need to be motivated.
1: How do you do that? How do you get to know the the motivational profile of each one of your people? What do you do to do that, Jerry?
0: I do it two different ways. One of them is in the interview process. I ask them, how do you know it's been a good day? And that will usually actually push out. I know it's been a good day when I get stuff done on my checklist, or I know it's been a good day when somebody says I've helped them, or I know it's been a good day when I've been able to make a strategic decision, or I know it's been a good day when, you know, one of the top level people has talked to me or whatever, right? And then I'm like, okay, you like hearing from this, you like being the expert, you like this, you like this, you like this, right? So that's one of the ways. And then the first one-to-one that I have with them when I hire them is that I ask them a similar thing. What motivates you? Tell me what it is that brings you joy every day. And if they don't really get it, the first filter, I try again, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, you know, why, 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 and dig a little bit deeper until it comes out at the end of actually, I just really want this. And I've had an, an employee actually before who was self-aware enough to be able to say in our first interview and you know, first one-to-one, she gave me one piece. And then about three months later, she goes, I actually am changing my mind on that. I think it's this instead. Okay. And, and so we were, yeah, we were able to, I was like, that's fantastic. It's great. And so then for those folks who are, you know, just need a little bit of recognition and gratitude. If they worked over the weekend, I'd send them an Amazon card, you know, and say thank you for for pulling crazy hours this weekend. For those that truly wanted recognition elsewhere, and made sure that their names were heard by the right people. For those that needed a day off, I made sure that they needed a day off. And those that needed to hear in front of a forum of people that they had done a really great job, I just made sure that that mechanism was available to them as well.
1: I love that. Let me ask a related question, Jerry. Certainly, you've led many people, many teams, and over the years, and I'm suspecting that along the way, here and there, you have a, a, a pretty uncoachable person that you're <laughs> that's part of your team, <laughs> right? And that's another beautiful opportunity that we all have from time to time. What have you learned about coaching the uncoachable? I shouldn't say uncoachable, but difficult to coach. We shouldn't label them as uncoachable, but you know what I mean? Very difficult to coach. What have you learned about how to do that?
0: Well, the first thing that I know is that an obstacle that I face every time is that I am bringing a bias to every conversation that I have. And I try not to, but I know it's there. And that is, I really identify and just feel a camaraderie with people who get crap done. And usually I use the other word, but this is a podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really appreciate those folks who are efficient and can just work to get things done. Yeah. And so therefore, I have an easy relationship with them kind of right out the door, Right. And so I know that I will bring that as a bias to most conversations, because if I'm talking to somebody who is not someone who gets stuff done and who instead is a little bit complacent, I know that I immediately have a filter on there where I'm frustrated with them because they're a little bit complacent. And so I know that that's there.
1: So you're looking for that execution bias, that bias for action, that high drive.
0: I know that that's there because I know that I, yeah. And and I have to like immediately fight against it. Right. And because you have that, I have that. And so I know that it's that like versus or like, you know, attracts to like kind of thing. And so I know that when I'm going into a coaching conversation, it often is for that reason, right? Like I need you to up your game. And so That's like the first thing that I try to take out of it. Then the next thing is, and and all of us who've like done the Keith Rosen courses or any of those, this is not a new thing, but you have to make sure that they're in a place where they can hear the coaching. Because if they're not meeting you halfway, they're not going to be interested. And so I actually then go back to that motivation factor and like, where do you want to be in five years? Okay. If you want to be here in five years, let's get you there. Here are the things that I think you need to do to get you there. Because if you can all of a sudden take it and it goes back to the audience, right? I feel like I'm just, I'm like a broken record now. If you can take it back to the what's in it for me, then you can try and coach them. And so if it's a, hey, are you ready to meet me halfway? And if so, great. And if not, let's talk at a different time, right? And then the next thing is, is, okay, where do you want to be in five years? Let's get you there. Now let's create a path that's going to get you there. One of the first things I need you to do is X, Y, and Z. Then let's do, let's just work on X, Y, and Z and then let's move on. Now, if that individual still doesn't want X, Y, and Z, still doesn't do it, still doesn't whatever, then the conversation is, how do you think you're going to get there? (laughs) Like, let's talk about this big gap that exists because if you're going to get there and I'm like, let's say that they are wanting to get to a director level or whatever, and they're a senior manager, right? We say, okay, if you're going to get to a director level, you need to have all of these skill sets and all of these capabilities and all of these soft skills And some of them right now are missing. So if I were to hire you outside, I would still be looking for this long laundry list of things that I would need for you to, you know, to be able to express and illustrate that you've done. So let's get you there. And if you can't get there, and if you can't do those like that gap, then I can't, you know, put you in that role. So, you know, what's holding you back? Mm -hmm. What is it that, you know, do you need feedback a different way? We approach it from like eight directions to be able to see, and then if you finally, after trying those like six things, they're still not coachable. It really is one of those where it's, okay, I'm gonna put you on plan now. And I'm gonna put you on plan and here's the things that I need you to do. And if that doesn't, hopefully that will light the fire, right? Like That's the, that's the last final you know, attempt for them to get that, whatever it is, um, drive that they need to fix those things. Mm-hmm. And then if that doesn't help, then hopefully they'll find a, a different role that's a better fit for them. I do think it's very important to find that people are in the right seat on the bus.
1: It strikes me, Jerry, that you are exceptionally good at discovery in coaching and that oftentimes and you probably find this to be the case that you're you're coaching and they haven't come to a place of clarity themselves. And so as you're doing discovery it becomes joint discovery. Yeah. And you're helping them clarify their goals, their aspirations, their motivations. Is that true? Do you find that a lot?
0: Yeah, I agree. I first of all, thank you for the compliment. I'm sure that there's someone listening that's like, yeah, whatever. She's been my manager. (laughs) She's not great, but hopefully, I do aspire to. No, I'm pretty persuaded, my folks. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) but I do. I think that it's you know sometimes folks just have never thought about it. You know, I've I've actually asked a lot of folks, "What's your five year plan?" And they looked at me with big (laughs) deer in headlights. Look, I'm like. I've never, I don't know. I just like to go to work every day. And I'm like, okay, well, let's back up from that a little bit. What about your job daily? Do you enjoy? What part is the part that brings you joy? Um, you you know, if it's somebody who's wearing eight hats, which hat do you like best? What's the, you know, if, is it a good day because you've done hats number one and two, or is it a good day because you've done, done seven and eight and let's figure out which of those really bring you joy and make you shine. Yeah, And yeah. And so it's sometimes just framing it in a way that they get, because sometimes Somebody's never asked them before.
1: Right. So let's see if we can kind of bring this all together with this question. And by the way, the insights are, are, are remarkable. Let's focus on Gen Zers. The Gen Zers are now coming into the workforce, and it's a new day, it's a new environment. It's hyper competitive, it's volatile, it's unforgiving, it's unpredictable. The ambiguity that they'll have to deal with is enormous. And and you are I I really Jerry I would classify you as among other things just a, a master coach. What advice would you give to the Gen Zers that are coming into the workforce that are beginning professional life in this environment?
0: Well, I will be the first to admit I'm slightly biased because I have a kid who falls into that. And so I'm coming in yeah. as a parent first. Yeah. First of all, I I think that they're I'm the first one to say we've got to cut them a little bit of slack because they have had to deal with more volatility in their 20, 25 years than any of us have had to deal with, you know, except in the last two or three. So just knowing that there is that kind of have to live life to its fullest right now because who knows what's happening tomorrow, right? I feel like that that's okay. We can't expect them to have otherwise. Some of the original coaching conversations that I have though is there is a little bit of you have to earn your stripes mm-hmm. and this comes from you know my starting in in, in defense and those kind of things that there is a little bit of you have to learn a lot and as you say there is so much coming at you you have to learn all of those things and then add some maturity onto that emotionally i don't care how old you are as i say those guys who when i was 23 just gave me the benefit of the doubt and were the kindest humans ever So I don't mean emotionally. I mean, I don't mean age-wise at all. I do mean emotional and being able to read a room. And there is some maturity that comes with that. And just knowing you have to be able to read a room, you have to be able to bring some emotional maturity to an experience in order to have earned your stripes, almost as much as those hard skills and the capabilities and the software know-how and all of that kind of thing. The next thing I, I would say is, You have to be willing to succeed in the role you're in before you ask for a new one. Prove to me that you can do what you're doing, because that's the one thing that I've seen. Um, You know, I I actually don't see the stereotype playing out a ton. I really don't. I I know a lot of people are like, oh, millennials. And I'm like, I actually, I I haven't seen it. I've I've seen it in a couple that, you know, when you look up Wikipedia, it's their picture that it would be. But but otherwise, I actually haven't seen the stereotype play out really well. I think that that sometimes gets played too much and that we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. But if they are pushing on that stereotypical, I want a new role. I've been here six months. I should run the company by now. you know that, that whole stereotype that goes with that. If they are pushing with, I need a new role and I've only been here six months, that is the first thing I go back with is I need you to succeed exceptionally in the role you're in now so that I can trust you with more. And you need to prove to me and everybody else around you that you are exceptional at getting you know, this one thing done well and succeeding in this specific spot. I also really suggest their creativity and curiosity is one of the best things that we could welcome into our workforce. The curiosity in and of itself, just that's one of the things that I actually really interview for is curiosity and like critical thinking skills. I would almost rather have someone who's curious than a lot of things. And that's been taught to me by a mentor as well. But I, you know, case in point, we were hiring for a role. I had several different options of really great, great candidates. And if I'm getting to that final end of, shoot, who do I hire? Because they're all amazing. And whom should I invite onto this team? One of the final things that I use as kind of a tiebreaker is who asks the right questions back? Who came prepared to this? And knew what to ask and kind of got it and was able to, you know, ask clarifying questions. If they haven't looked at the website, if they haven't, whatever, obviously that's even a non sequitur That's table stakes to me at this point. But then it gets to that. How curious are they about how the rest of the things happen? Can they see those secondary and tertiary impacts or effects or things that we should be asking about rather than just their tiny sphere of influence? Mm -hmm. But can they see the circles outside of it? Those are the people that I would invest in. Every time.
1: So you're looking for strategic thinking, systems thinking, critical thinking capabilities right out of the chute.
0: Yeah. Because they, right? If they say, What do you do when this happens? I'm like, Oh, yeah, the, you, you've got this. Because even if they honestly, it's a naive question and they have no idea, the fact that they thought to ask it, fantastic. Yeah. Let's put you somewhere that you can solve problems. That sounds great.
1: It seems to me, Jerry, that we haven't done a very good job of that in the past. We bring people in, we put them in a job. And want them to develop technical depth and get good at what they do, but it fosters a tactical mindset. And then we get siloed. And then at some point we tap them on the shoulder later in their career, whatever, and we say, we want you to learn strategically. And they say, I'd love to do that. How do I do that? Yeah. They don't know how to do it because they're they're not being pushed to think about the implications of a decision or a course of action. They don't think through scenarios. They don't think about cause and effect relationships. They don't think about first and second and third order consequences because we haven't been asking it of them. If you go back to, I mean, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation in the industrial revolution, what did we do? Division of labor. I mean, this is Adam Smith and, and making pins. Yep. You do this and then you hand it over and then you do this. And I think we're still battling that. And I talked to a CEO the other day He said to me, Tim, my biggest, most acute need with my people, with my, my leadership team is critical thinking. He said that was number one. So I'm just so interested that you, you have said that.
0: Yeah. Well, I have two mentors to thank for it. One of them, I came to them when I was super, super frustrated and I was like, how do I show everybody that I can do what's next? And he said, Jerry, you are really great at coming to meetings and knowing your purview. You are really great at when somebody says something, you know, how it impacts your folks. He said, for the next three meetings, I want you to come and I don't want you to mention your team at all. I want you to ask how it impacts the other teams. Wow. And I was like, and yeah, it's brilliant. And I've told him before, and I've given him kudos on LinkedIn and all the things, but that has been a life-changing conversation because he said, I want to know that you can see how it impacts everything else. And when you can show that you can see outside of your own little box and not get you know, defensive of your own team or whatever, people will start to take you seriously. And I was like, okay. And I did, and he was right. And it was a great catapult. The next thing is that I, I sat in another leader's office and was frustrated that I was being held in a box and was frustrated about the silo or whatever. And he just looked at me and he said, I want you to break the hell out of that ceiling. (laughs) It's like, okay. Okay. (laughs) And if anybody's holding you back, you let me know. And so I think that those two are the things, right? Expect your team to see the other implications. Expect them to start seeing the ripple effect and ask them in the meetings, ask them, how do you think this could impact this? How do you think you could impact this? And give them the permission to start thinking strategically because our whole role is to motivate and inspire new leaders, right? And Get them to that point where they can, they can get there. I had an executive coach who just said, honestly, your whole role is just to get them ready. And so we've just got to make sure that we, we help them see that ripple effect of any tactical decision to be able to understand the strategic implications.
1: Well, does that make sense in the context of an experience economy? Because if we're creating experiences, then everything we do has an impact on the experience. So it makes sense that we need to be thinking laterally. We need integrative thinking. We need to synthesize things because ultimately it's going to touch the CX in some way.
0: Yeah. Well, and to that end, one thing that you, so you asked, how would I coach a a new Gen Z or coming in? That's one of the things I think that so much they do, again, not to stereotype, they do inherently, is drive that experience. They can sniff out a bad UX a mile away. I love
1: that. And so
0: to be able to give them a voice to say that, and then the piece of coaching that I would give is, you know, yes, go find those problems and let's go solve them. The piece of coaching that I generally have to follow up with that is but do it through the right channels and make sure you're involving the right folks. So that again, the EQ is there. And, and instead of just driving by yourself, you're now helping support other teams. And now we're all lifting together instead of just you having rocket fuel behind you and the rest of the team being bugged that you're not with them anymore.
1: I love that. You got to help them navigate in the organization, right? You're not flying solo. And usually there's some experience and skill building that we need to do, right? To learn how to, how to navigate organizationally. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Jerry, this has been an incredible conversation. Terrific insights. Um, I want to give you the last word with any, any advice or wisdom that you'd like to share with us as we wrap up the conversation today. Thank you.
0: Honestly, I think any of us are standing on the shoulders of giants, right? All of us have been built up, as you say, by those amazing leaders and by those not amazing leaders who've all learned what not to do, and by parents who empowered us, and by those teams that have empowered us. So I think that you can still give 150% and be kind at the same time. And even as a leader, to assume that the kid sitting next to you who just started their career is probably smarter than you. And so it's best to just channel their intelligence level in the right, in the channel, right way. Yeah. And that truly, if you can lead with kindness, you can still be bold and be kind at the same time.
1: I love that. That's an elusive combination for many, many leaders, but thank you for helping us understand that it's real and it's possible and that we can do it. Yeah, that's brilliant.
0: Well, thank you for letting me be on today. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been super fun. It's been the best part of my day.
1: Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.